I haven't heard of any sicknesses or colds or flus or that kind of thing on the schedule we have. However, I think that uh, I can probably cover most of what I have left to say in this series, at least, in, I mean, you could put a lot more detail, but I think I can cover the main points of what I have to say tonight and probably Thursday uh, on the Holy Day. So I thought I'd just give everybody a break and a night off tomorrow night. That way you can rest up a bit and, and uh, have some time. I mentioned last night that we need to be sure and have time for God because that's what this is all about, and meditation and so on. And we get so busy with preparation of food and coming and so on uh, and just listening that uh, perhaps as the last holy day begins, we have that evening, we can use that time for... Uh, personal solitude, personal devotion, personal uh, meditation, and so on that we've talked about. So, uh, a little—I'll I'll give you a little break in time, so it'll help you maybe spend some time with God in a way that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise, and especially since it's going into the Sabbath and we have that whole evening ahead of us. So let's uh, let's cancel tomorrow's service, and for you on the phone line, the next service we have, of course, will be uh, Thursday at 1, Thursday at 1, our time, and that will be the final day of the Feast of the Passover and Unleavened Bread. We spent quite a little time with Job, uh, and I think it was well worth it to consider some of the things that occurred there, and what God was trying to work with Job. And I don't know that we should say Job had sinned in anything that he was doing. I thought about that a little more today. That You know, there was an area that Job did not grasp. He didn't fully get some things. So it wasn't so much a matter necessarily of of, uh, chastening or punishment for sin is it was he put him through what he put him through to get him to grasp how great God was and how small he was. Uh, And he got that message. Now, he did realize there were some things wrong with his attitude because he said, I repent uh, in dust and ashes and abhor myself. So he got a better picture of himself and a better picture of God. And what more could you ask? Not only did God bless him, but I'm sure that probably the very minute that Job said what he did to God there in those five verses, his boils went away. Probably just like that. And God healed him physically, didn't let Satan have anything more to do with him, and began to bless him from that day forward. So... If God puts something on us, then he has another answer. And we should be very, very aware of that. And I'll probably get into that some on Thursday, of what he gives us and what we go through and then what he's going to back it up with. But let's go to Daniel, since he was also mentioned there in Ezekiel 14. Uh, Noah, Job, and Daniel as being three truly righteous men uh, who could only answer for themselves. The book of Daniel occurs at the time when Nebuchadnezzar had come against Jerusalem and taken it captive. And Nebuchadnezzar then, of course, ruled over the kingdom of Babylon, the greatest kingdom of that time by far, and pretty much, in that sense, a world-ruling empire had destroyed Jerusalem and besieged it and so on, and we fast over that siege and over that destruction of the temple and then of the fall of Jerusalem and the fast of the 5th, the 7th, uh, I guess the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 
in in, uh, 10th month. Some of the things that occurred, along with the uh, murder of the one that even Nebuchadnezzar had appointed as a Jew over those Jews who were left behind. So some very momentous things were occurring there. (coughs) And when this captivity occurred then, the king, Daniel 1, told the prince of the eunuchs that he wanted some children of Israel, certain ones, uh, verse 3, and of the king's seed and of the princes. So he wanted the most outstanding young men of the Jewish tribe to be trained and used by him for his purposes. Now it does appear very, very likely that the first thing that happened when, well, let's, uh, let's, let's read, read a little more before I say that. Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and uh, cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. Not everybody could do that. They had to have a certain poise, a certain standing, a certain ability to be able to appear and not make total fools of themselves, and whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. So he took the choicest of the young people, and even some of royalty, and brought them in. Now, they were to be brought back before the king after three years of training and nourishing, and then he would decide which ones he would use how. Now, understand that this was the prince of the eunuchs that they were put under. So, by every account it would seem that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were castrated soon after arriving in Babylon. Now that's quite an interesting way to uh, come into a new country and do a new life, is to have your masculinity simply taken away from you. Now the prince of the eunuchs, of course, oversaw uh, the king's harem and that kind of thing, and uh, they always made eunuchs of anybody who was going to be around the women. That way, uh, solved any of those problems that might come along. So that is apparently what happened to these four young men. Now, they were children of God, some of the leaders of the Jews, and uh, God allowed this. Had it all planned out ahead of time. So, you know, some of the things you go through to serve God can get pretty strong. (laughs) And that's one reason I wanted to go to this. But a lot of people would be destroyed. A lot of people would uh, not be able to handle what these guys went through there. But they were able to handle it. We'll see that. Now let's understand that the book of Daniel was written, had a lot to do with Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom and what would happen to it on an immediate basis, and by the time Daniel's lifetime was over, uh, Babylon was destroyed, and Cyrus the Persian had come in and taken over. So Daniel lived a long time under Nebuchadnezzar and then under Cyrus for a couple of years. But to us, the book of Daniel has been sealed. He says it would be sealed until the end time. We are now in the end time, and perhaps the book of Daniel is becoming clearer in spots. I think I understand parts of it better by far than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly 30 years ago. Uh, But there's still some things in here that are a little uh, hard to understand, that maybe we don't quite have a clear understanding yet. But much of it we can see coming. So let's be aware, as we look at Daniel and his life, uh, some of the things that may impact us in this modern-day Babylon that we now live in. Now, I think it is quite clear 
to quite a few people now that America is the modern Babylon that rules the world or has been for the last several decades. But this Babylon is going to be destroyed quite soon before our lives are done for the most part. And it will be replaced then by another Babylon, a bigger one, a beast and a false prophet, and that Babylon will rule the whole world. It will be of iron and miry clay, as Daniel shows. It won't hang together too well. And it will last 42 months once it's fully formed and takes over Jerusalem. This Jerusalem where God is. So those are things that are just around the corner. And they will impact people that you know. Some of your friends, some of your relatives, and some of us if we're not careful. Uh, people that are alive and breathing today are the ones that the book of Daniel are going to impact. This isn't a, a prophecy for way off in the future somewhere. It's for now. And it has to do with the church of God that was called here in the end time and that which remains of it, one-tenth of which is going to repent and come to build God's temple in Jerusalem. And the other nine-tenths, a lot of people you know, are going to go into the tribulation and die there. Hopefully they will repent first, but they will die there. Satan will not spare them. Uh, he, won't, he will go after the remnant of her seed and get all of them. I'm quite sure of that. He will recognize any place the Spirit of God resides. No matter how strong or how weak, he will recognize it. Because it is a blinding light to him that he hates. And he will be after anyone who is not under God's protection at that point. Now we're going to see here in Daniel's life, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of God's capacity to deliver. And I want us to understand that. Because we want to be delivered, do we not? We don't want to die some horrible death and martyrdom and persecution and torture and many of the things that are going to occur. So he starts out with these guys, probably had them castrated immediately after they arrived in Babylon or perhaps after they had been chosen for special use. Uh, you know, people are more pliable. They're less rebellious. They're easier to use. They don't get in there as much trouble. They don't cause as many problems if they've been emasculated. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted these guys trained for his purposes, and he didn't want any problems out of them. So that's the way Gentile kings in those days handled that. So that must have been quite a shock to these guys. Now, they haven't been promised anything yet. Uh, they haven't been shown anything yet. They've just been brought in and operated on. Now, the king had appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now, this was not unusual. Remember that uh, Esther and those ladies had to be prepared for quite some time before they were given admittance to the king. They, he, they wanted them in as good a shape as good-looking, as well-trained as they could possibly get them before they ever came into that presence. So the king was thinking ahead. Let's feed these guys for three years and uh, get them prepared. They would be learning Chaldean in the meantime. They would be learning all the mysteries of Babylon, being taught. Uh, having been taught as Jews, now they would be taught the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans, verse, end of verse 4. So among these were the four aforementioned ones, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. Well, that's where you get the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar for Daniel. Now, but Daniel, verse 8, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's food, nor with the wine which he drank. 
Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now this scared the eunuch because the king had ordered that they be treated a certain way. And if they weren't treated that way and they didn't look good, he might lose his head. You know, in these, these Gentile kingdoms, it didn't take much to lose your head. Uh, one order and one swipe of the sword and it was all over. So he was concerned. Uh, what, if, what if he sees you looking worse than these other children and you endanger my head to the king? Verse 11, Daniel said to uh, Merzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel. Now, here's an intermediary. He's not talking to the prince of the eunuchs now, but the guy that had been assigned to him personally. And he says, uh, I've got a request to make of you. We're going to go around the prince of the eunuchs here, and uh, I want something done. Prove your servants, I beseech you, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. So, instead of what they were being fed and the wine they were given to drink, uh, this may have been vegetables, uh, it isn't clear exactly what it was that Daniel asked for, that's very possible. But considering someone who is a eunuch, they tend to gain weight, they tend to get soft and lose their muscular uh, Formidity. Uh, so they become Carabic, maybe, <laughs> would be a word. Uh, round and soft and gentle and so on. And Daniel didn't want to look that way. He didn't want to get that way. So he said, feed us differently and see if we don't look healthier after ten days than these guys that are eating this other stuff. And there may have been unclean meats there too that they were being fed who knows what all they were being given but whatever it was he wanted something different and said I think we'll look healthier and better after 10 days than these other guys he said look upon us and he consented verse 14 and at the end of that uh, their countenance appeared fat, uh, fairer and fatter, fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. I don't know whether that means fat per se. Uh, God says in some places that we'll obey him and we'll do what we should. He'll make our bones fat. Uh, I've never seen anybody with fat bones. I've seen people with a lot of fat on their bones as an expression. Your health. You would be in good health. Your bones would be in good condition and so on. So whether this actually means the kind of fat we see in the mirror or on the scales or not is uh, probably not the case. Because they were to appear in better health and healthier, fairer. So the fatter may just simply mean in better condition, looking better. I don't know that for sure, but... I don't think he wanted to get fatter as we know fat. That would not have been to good purpose. So he took that away and gave them uh, what they asked for. Now, God had allowed a terrible thing to happen to these four guys. And then in verse 17, he turns around and gives them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, uh, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed, talked with them, and among them all was found none like the four. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even to the first year of King Cyrus. Remember how God gave skill and, and uh, craftsmanship and ability to those who were building the tabernacle in the wilderness? He just gave them capacity that they didn't have. Maybe they didn't know how to use carpenter tools. But God, or, or, or to, uh, to make gold, 
to refine, maybe to cut stones, all the things that had to be done, tan hides, whatever their job was, God gave them extra skill and capacity to do it. And here, he allowed something that was personally horrible to these fellows, and then he gave them gifts that they would need to deal with Babylon. Ten times what all the magicians had. Smartest men in Babylon, the craftiest, the most satanic, supposedly, uh, they had ten times the capacity that those guys did. So God must be working something out here to allow an atrocity and then to give them these gifts. Now remember, this is an end-time book. What we're reading here is history, is projected into the future for some of the things that God is about to do and have even been sealed until now so that they could not be understood until now or maybe shortly hereafter. <laughs> may still be a month or a year before some of this is revealed or two years, who knows. <coughs> anyway, Nebuchadnezzar had a, a dream and was troubled and uh, we, we know the story. I'm not going to go through it all for sake of time, but uh, we know that the magicians were all brought in and the, the smart guys, and they couldn't tell the guy, what the, the Nebuchadnezzar, what his dream was or interpret it or anything else. So he says, well, let's just kill them all. <laughs> That's an easy solution. They can't tell me what my dream was. They must not be very bright. So we'll just kill them all. And then this was brought to Daniel, and uh, he went and told his three companions so they might pray, and they might ask the God of heaven for help. So down in chapter 2, verse 18, he said that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now we know from Joel 2 that there's coming a time shortly when God is going to give visions and dreams to young men, young women, old men, old women, and so on. So... What he did back here, we see as a future event. This is going to happen with some of you. I hope so. Think about it. Put yourself in a position that God could use you for such a thing. You don't have to be perfect. Daniel wasn't. Nobody was. But they had to be counted worthy and somehow trained well ahead of time for what God was going to do. So these fellows had special training for three years. Then they were brought in. Then trouble came, and God delivered. He had it planned all ahead of time. <clears throat> and then he gave special inspiration to Daniel. Now this is interesting, starting in verse 19, what Daniel said. The secret was revealed to him. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. <clears throat> I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me now what we desired of you. For you have now made known to us the king's matter. It just struck me as I was going back over this today that... Uh, that's kind of the speech that God wanted out of Job all along. About how great God was and how he changes times and seasons. And 
He's the one that does all these things. Now Daniel had that figured out. But Job apparently didn't until God intervened in his life and helped him figure it out and then got him where he wanted him in terms of his understanding and therefore he could worship and be more devoted to God from then on than he had been before, righteous as he had been. So Daniel had very, very deep understanding and he praised God mightily. So we know <coughs> that he was able to answer the king's dream. Go down to verse 28. Daniel was answering the king. He says, There is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed are these. So some of this occurred back then in the destruction of Babylon, as I said. But the main point of this book is what will happen in the latter days. The days that we are living in, living through, and what we are about to live through. As for you, O king, your thoughts came into your mind upon your bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that reveals secrets makes known to you what shall come to pass. Just, I'm telling them, this, this is from God. It's not from one of Satan's fortune tellers, but a vision from God that explained the truth. Something his fortune tellers couldn't do. So he said, he, you saw a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before you, and the form thereof was terrible, wondrous. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of iron, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. And you saw till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Now here's a prophecy, undoubtedly of Christ, who is the stone cut out without hands. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation. Uh, he is the stone laid before uh, uh, Joshua there in Zechariah 3. And it is his signs, his miracles, his wonders that caused people to see and to be stirred. So he is going to be working hand in hand, not with Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, but with the leaders and the people that he is calling to do these things against Babylon here at the end. And to fight them off. <clears throat> It said, Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. Isn't that what Christ is going to do to the worldwide Babylon? Babylon is just the government of Satan. Confusion. And he has centered on America as the leader of the world's confusion. He is going to cause it to be destroyed. <clears throat> and come back again as a world-ruling empire, the new world order, if you will. And it will be destroyed then shortly thereafter, because it will be an amalgamation of nations who are trying to get along while they rule the earth, and they won't mix too well. It'll be like iron and miry clay, and uh, it won't be strong. That which is uh, divided cannot stand. So he tells us it'll be 42 months. The times of the Gentiles will be 42 months, three and a half years, and then this will all come tumbling down. And you have opportunity to be standing on Mount Zion, watching it all happen in peace and safety. So he told him, you, O king, of 37, 
uh, a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power and strength and glory. So he here clearly shows that it has to do with that Nebuchadnezzar, but at the same time he's already said it has to do with the latter days. So it's a prophecy that's been fulfilled or partially fulfilled in the past, but will be fulfilled in greater measure on a complete worldwide basis here in the time just ahead of us. So God is using Daniel to show us what is about to occur. So, then we have the next account, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were accused and weren't going to do what the king said. You know, kids that have been made eunuch aren't supposed to resist as much. But these guys were worshiping God. And despite their loss of testosterone and everything else, they had enough of the power, the might, the mind, the teaching of God that they were going to stand up against the king anyway. So that shows the power of God, not the power of people. And we are called what? In Isaiah 58. Eunuchs for the kingdom. Now we have not been physically abused that way. But he says that we will be powerless like eunuchs. And that we will have to get our power from God in order to stand against what is coming. He says the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath. There at Isaiah 58. I think it's 58. <clears throat> so who keeps his Sabbath? Only the church. So that means that we are the eunuchs that keep his Sabbath. We are powerless. Didn't he say that the church would not have power, but he would give power to his witnesses, and then when that power is taken away at the end of Daniel, they will be killed, and the beast will stand and say, okay, now we rule the world. These guys are gone. And are they in for a surprise? <laughs> when Christ comes, the stone made without hands and destroys them with the trumpet plagues and the seven last plagues. Seven last plagues coming at the time of the seventh trump when the first resurrection occurs. So this is all encapsulated here. <clears throat> now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up against the king. This angered the king. Kings don't go for that. So he says, I want you to build up that fire that we throw people in fairly often. And uh, I want you to make it seven times hotter than it's ever been made before. I don't know how he did that, whether it was just a bigger flame, bigger fire, or whether he put more fuel in. But whatever he did, he wanted it seven times hotter than what normally melted people. Now, if you were in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes about then, and you were tied up maybe, standing back, watching this fire being stoked, what would your thoughts be? I think you'd be mortified, scared nearly to death as you watch this preparation going on. And yet, you would also be thinking... Didn't God give us wisdom and understanding ten times greater than the Babylonian sorcerers? Didn't God just reveal a dream that the king couldn't even remember to the king and then give him the interpretation on top of it? And here we are about to be thrown in the fire. That would be what you'd call mixed emotions. I think you're trusting God you believe in God 
and you got these big, burly, strong guys on either side of you that are about to give you a toss. And then the king says, all right, the fire is finally hot enough. Throw them in. And then there must have been real fear that could paralyze them unless they had utter and total faith in God and didn't fear at all. Do you think that's possible? Not for a normal human being it couldn't be. Not, I don't think I could be standing there without some fear. I just uh, I mean you could feel the heat, you could see the flames. I don't know exactly what their mindset was at that moment, but what did they say? Verse 18, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. We're just not going to do it. And that's what led to this scenario. So then he threw them in. And then the king looked in there, and he saw four men walking around. In the fire. What kind of a god do we have, brethren? You know what he just rehearsed to Job about how he did this and he did that and he did something else and he he set the bounds of the oceans and the stars and put everything in order. And we know what happens when we throw beef on the barbie. We know what happens when we throw turkey bacon in the skillet or eggs or whatever. Very hot. We teach our kids from the very beginning of their life, don't touch the stove. Because we know what fire does. These guys knew what fire did. Now, I cannot imagine any scenario on this earth with the laws of science in any way that could have prevented those guys from being burned up. The fellows that threw them in the fire were burned to death. It was so hot, as they got close to throw them in, they died. What kind of God do you worship? Do you believe, as Job came to believe, that God is powerful enough to have people walking around in that kind of fire? Is Christ there walking with him? Or an angel? I don't know, but he could see four in there. And they were not hurt. They came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can God heal us? Can God hear our prayers? Can God take care of us? can come to no other conclusion that he has that capacity. He can do anything he chooses. Anything you ask within my will, I will do it for you, he said to his disciples. And that's us who would listen to what they said. It's just a matter of faith. That's what it is. Believing God can do it, and then believing he will do it. And Christ often said that. Your faith has made you whole. It wasn't his belief. It was theirs. Told a centurion. <laughs> You're here. Your kid's over there. He says, that's okay. I know you're of God. He'll, he'll be fine. He says, when somebody tells me what to do, I just go do it. And you're in charge, and you just told me what was going to happen, so... It's going to happen. That was an unconverted, carnal man who had just understood and seen some of the things Christ had said and done, apparently. And he said, hey, I know it's taken care of. I'm not worried. And what is why? <laughs> you know, we used to have an air of expectancy in the church. 
I remember from the 50s and 60s particularly. When I was a kid, if one of us got sick, and sometimes we were deathly ill, uh, my parents are quite convinced or were that I had polio back when it was a big thing. Not the kind that deforms you, but the kind that kills you. And I remember my brother, uh, Mark, was just a, a baby, and he got so sick, he was barely breathing. And my dad kept pumping him and rubbing him, I don't know, for two or three days. And when they called <coughs> Pasadena for a cloth, if I had polio, it went away. And when they called Pasadena and asked for a cloth to be sent, Mark revived. We expected it to happen because we had been told, or no, we'd read a little booklet about that thick, maybe eight quarter pages or whatever it was, about divine healing. There were a lot of scriptures that were not included in that little booklet. An awful lot of them. A lot of examples from the Bible that were not in that little booklet. Does God heal today? It was entitled. And we read it. And we believed. It was that simple. First anointing I did, I told you about. My little cousin who had not been potty in weeks. And was laying there sick and bloated and about to die. And I expected her to be healed, even though it was my first anointing, and I was a little nervous because I'd never done that before. And 15, 20, 30 minutes later, whatever it was, I looked out in the yard, and she was out running around playing, just like that. Bam. God did those things. Some of you witnessed them. And then we began to stray from God and not believe Him like we had and became lukewarm. And a lot of that ceased. We get answers sometimes now and some interventions sometimes now. But we don't get as many healings or as dramatic a ones for the most part as happened back then. I submit that we need to get back there. We need to get back to that kind of faith and expectancy so that we know it's going to happen because God said so. And we what? Believe in. Your faith, your trust, your belief has made you whole. God responds to true faith, to true belief. And that's where he is trying to take his people now is to come to have that kind of trust in him. So that when we pray, it's not a, not a ceremony. It's a request for something we expect to happen. And we need to come to that point again. And as we come there, God is going to begin to respond again. Now we've seen some here. In the early years here. Cameron Crider was just about this long and quit breathing and turned blue. And all the Crider kids came running out of the house screaming, the baby's dying, the baby's sick, something's wrong with the baby. I heard them screaming. I was outside. So I grabbed some oil and ran over there and indeed the child was blue and was not breathing. Mother was sitting there holding her. And as soon as I laid hands on that child and started to pray, she caught her breath, started breathing, and her color came back. I don't know whether they remember that or not, but I do. I know God intervened there. I have no doubt about it. I think he intervened a couple of times close to the last Passover, three times that I know of. Save somebody from a bad heart attack, still alive today. Save somebody from bad feet that I think was about to die, still around. And another issue with a mother and a baby that was taken care of pretty much immediately. 
when she was anointed. So God hasn't forgotten us, brethren. He gives us a little encouragement here and there. And maybe we need to think about those things and not forget them. To remember them. And know that in our day and age, God has done some things just like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Death is death. Kid wasn't breathing. My little, my little brother, all those years ago, it was basically quit breathing. And it was just being stroked and the massage that kept him alive until they called Pasadena. And he was healed. How dead do you have to be to be dead? How, how sick do you have to be when God intervenes that we believe? These guys believed. And they didn't get dead. They didn't even get close to dead. The guys that threw them in died, but they didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. Do you believe that? Is that a fairy story? Or is there a God who made the stars and made the waves of the sea and designed our bodies and breathed the breath of life into them? Is there a God, a living God, who cares for us? Verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word. Nobody changed the king's word. This angel did. And yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And then he promoted them in the province of Babylon. Did God make a powerful witness to Nebuchadnezzar or not? Ned never worshipped that God, but he recognized him. And he says, don't you ever say anything against him. I think he was full of awe and inspiration and probably a little afraid, wouldn't you think? That this God who had done that could do some other stuff. <laughs> And Daniel had already told him and was going to tell him some more that he was in trouble. So he got a certain amount of fear there. Nebuchadnezzar the king, chapter 4, and to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multitude, uh, multiplied to you. I thought it good to show you the signs and wonders that the high God has worked toward me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. That's quite a speech from a Gentile king. You know what? We're supposed to have the same effect upon the kings of this world. Let's see, let's go down. He's, uh, he's explained that there would be a tree that would grow and so on, and how it would be hewn down there in chapter 4. Verse 17, This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets up over it the basis of men. That's a key verse in Daniel. 
is that it has to be shown to this world that God is God. And He does as He pleases. And they will not be able to countermand God's prophets at the end. They will be given the power to give all the plagues of Egypt, as mentioned in Revelation 11. They will be given power to have fire come out of their mouths and destroy anyone who tries to hurt them. They will stand against the new world order, and the new world order can do nothing about it. You know what? All these preppers out here fear the new world order. Or they fear their own government. Or they fear fear itself. Or they fear Islam. Or they fear something. So they're preparing and trying to figure out a way to get away. Because they fear those who have the power and the guns and the bombs and the power to shut off the electricity and the food and everything that we enjoy in our nation today. And they are smart enough to know that men are evil and that this, these things are going to happen. They don't need Bible prophecy, a lot of them, to know that. They can see what is happening to America in its incredible indebtedness and in the morass of stupidity going on in Washington. And they know, with the border open, that we're going to be overrun. And all these things they can see. So they're trying to get ready. we got something else to look to. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't get physically prepared, but we need to know that the Most High rules in the Kingdom of Heaven. And He does what He pleases. And He sets over the kingdoms the basis of men. So I think you can put Clinton and Bush and very probably Trump in that statement. I don't trust him any more than any of the rest of them. He's one of those billionaires in that club. And he may be giving you a line, but he hasn't done the stuff he said he'd do. He really hasn't. And stopping the border was one of the biggest promises he ever made in his campaign. He had not a thing to shut it down. Nothing. He's talked about it, but he's done nothing. And he knows we're being invaded. So, he's either too weak to do it, or he's been threatened and he knows if he does it, he'll die. So he's compromised. He may have wanted to do some of those things, but he's doing the willing, the things that his handlers want him to do. And that is, let this country be overrun and destroyed. And he's not doing a thing about it. So do I trust him? No more than any of the others. Just one of the members of the Billionaires Club. And they go to each other's weddings and each other's parties. And behind the scenes, they get together and laugh at you and me. That's what they do. Now, Daniel's troubles weren't over either, you know. He said, when the king made the great image, that uh, he wouldn't fall down and worship it. And he had a habit of going to his apartment, his dwelling, at noon, and praying toward Jerusalem out his window. Now, he was under the threat of death if he worshipped the true God of heaven instead of Nebuchadnezzar's image. He didn't change his routine. He didn't say, well, you know, maybe I'll go pray in the other room today where they can't see me. Didn't do it. Kept up his routine, just like it had been. And you know then that he was called in. And Nebuchadnezzar had an emotional bond and close feelings to Daniel after he had told him his dreams, uh, interpreted them properly, and all that stuff. They had gotten to have a bond. But they conspired against Daniel 
so that he was put in the position of going to be put to death, fed to the lions. The king was upset, but that was the law. He had said, bow down and worship me or die. And then when he wouldn't bow down, it was reported to him, so, so let it be written, so let it be done, <laughs> was the way the Gentile kings acted. So he was bound by his own word to kill Daniel. Now that would have given you a few nervous thoughts, I think, too. You look down in this pit and hear all these lions down there. They didn't get fed this morning because they knew that uh, they wanted them good and hungry. So they threw him in. And he rolled all the way down and nothing happened. I don't know whether he used the lion for a pillow that night or not, but the lions didn't bother him. So Nebuchadnezzar came out early because he was worried. He, he knew Daniel had to have been eaten by now, but he still wanted to go be sure. So he got up early and went to check. And there was Daniel. Hey, Neb, how's it going? <laughs> I don't know what, ex- what exchange was made, but uh, must have been interesting. So then the, the king, as I recall, said... Uh, all right, all you guys that threw Daniel down in there, I want you thrown down there. And they got thrown down, and they were dead before they even reached the bottom. Maybe it was a, a long slide, I don't know. but Or maybe the maybe it was straight down, and the lion just simply grabbed them out of the air. But they didn't even make it to the bottom, and they were dead. So Nebuchadnezzar had quite a bit of witness, didn't he? Of God. Don't we read all the prophecies and see that Babylon and the rulers and leaders of Babylon are going to have an awful lot of witness from God. These things are written for the latter days. So what's happened before is going to happen again. There's going to be incredible deliverance. There's going to be signs and wonders from God. There will be signs and wonders from the beast and the false prophet. Fire from heaven. We already know Satan can call fire from heaven. Didn't he roast 7,000 sheep all at once? So there's an example of it. It's not just rhetoric there in Revelation. It's going to happen. Now what about you? Are you going to be so impressed with signs and wonders? You say, that must be of God. He says, no, it's not about that. What is it about? The truth of God. The Sabbath keepers, the holy day keepers, the ones who understand God's word and his commandments and his laws and keep them are the ones he says he's going to protect. So he's going to do signs and wonders and the world's going to do signs and wonders. Happened in Egypt, didn't it? We never even got there and I was going to go there. But it happened right there. And God's own Israelites not only saw it happening to the Egyptians, it happened to them too. Scary business. They went through the first few. And then God made a difference. Then they began to say, hmm, maybe there is a God. What was his name? They didn't even remember who he was. We have some exciting times ahead of us. Pretty close to us with the way things are going in the world I think we see the leaves coming on the trees I think we see that this is getting very close if we're watching the news at all and what's going on in this country and the world do we believe God do we trust him do we believe that no matter what comes he can take care of us he let Satan come that close to killing Job and he delivered him out of it He let Nebuchadnezzar come that close to killing those four men. But it didn't happen. Do you think he can save you? I think part of it is getting to you believe that you're worth saving. Because we recognize we're weak. We're the base of the world. 
And God is going to take the weak in the base of the world and transform them through the power of God to be his witnesses to the whole world from Zion. Not just two, but all of us. Believe it.